Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And actually, this is an episode of a new special series about um, the joint learning initiative from faith and local communities. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Good day, everybody. This is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. And actually, this is an episode of a new special series about um, the joint learning initiative from faith and local communities. And what we're going to try in every episode, we sit down with a unique voice, uh, individuals from varied backgrounds like non-governmental organizations, academic institutions, and JLI itself. And, you know, we would... We are trying to uh, delve deep into personal narratives and expert insights about the significant role of JLI at the crossroads of faith and development. Today, we have the privilege of hosting Emma Tomlin, a remarkable individual whose experience and viewpoints add a new dimension to our understanding of JLI's impact. We'll hear about Emma's journey, how she intersected with JLI, and her take on how this initiative is bridging critical gaps in religious and development literacy. You know, I myself am not you know, only maybe a year or one and a half year I know about this organization, and it's really important uh, work they're doing. So I, I hope that the episodes that we are going to share with you, um, you know, yeah, that you also um, become curious about the organization because they're doing really great work. So join us as we navigate these enlightening discussions, gaining a deeper appreciation of the diverse ways JLI influences and inspires those working towards a more understanding and cohesive world. So let's start. And um, yeah, Emma, please introduce yourself. And and um, I, I know I'm, I feel so bad. I know you just came back from long travels, but hopefully um, I will be able to keep you awake. <laughs> I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks very much, Maurice. So just to introduce myself first, um, my name is Emma Tomlin. I'm Professor of Religion and Public Life at the University of Leeds, which is in West Yorkshire in the north of England in the UK. Um, I've published widely on the topic of religion and international development, going back 15 to 20 years now at the time when this was just beginning to take off um, as an academic area of, mm. of study. I published a book um, in 2013 with Routledge called Religions and Development. And then in 2015 was the editor of a large, um, I think, 24 chapter volume, mm. um, the Routledge Handbook of Religions and Global Development. Do, do you still remember the first time that you heard about JLI? And was that before you started working with them or, or almost at the same time? No, it was before I started um, working with them. I, I um, 
I'm trying to remember now. It was it was a few years after the J, JLI had actually started, which I think was in 2012. Yeah. And somehow I was connected with the founder of the JLI, Jean Duff. Mm-hmm. Um, and this would have been around 2014, 2015. And I remember having a coffee with her. It's a lovely mm. sunny day in Washington, D.C. I was um, visiting there for another project or meeting. Um, and Jean uh, was living there. And uh, we met for a coffee and she told me all about this new initiative called the um, JLI. Um, But it wasn't until much later, um, perhaps around 2018, that I began directly collaborating with the JLI. Hmm. And and what did um, attract you, you know, to, to what she was envisioning? Because that was still in the initial stages, right? So around 2012. Yeah, very much. It was just it was just beginning. so I think for for me the the two there's two things that have stood out about yeah. the um JLI that I think are really unique and have had um a really um strong impact on the religions and development field. So first of all I'd say um the joint learning is between academic practitioners and faith actors. And from my point of view as an academic researcher working in this area, it's absolutely crucial to design research with academics, with, with academics, but also with practitioners and um, faith actors, so that we can make sure that research isn't just carried out for its own sake or at the whim of the scholars sitting in their university office. I want to carry out research that makes a difference to the lives of people experiencing poverty and inequality. And I think for that goal, it's absolutely essential that I work collaboratively with people outside the academy. So that's Mm. the first thing that really attracted me to the JLI was this joint learning between academic practitioners and faith actors. The second area is is in the name, local faith communities, local faith actors. So JLI focuses on local faith actors. And by the time I started working with the JLI, I'd been already publishing and working on the intersection between religion and development. And it was really clear to me that much of this focus on formal faith-based organizations that have international links and um, the local faith actors, the actors at the local level, were pretty much being ignored in the scholarly research, but also in the engagement between international agencies and um, NGOs. So local Mm -hmm. faith actors were much less often a focus of research and they weren't really engaged with to any great extent by international NGOs and agencies. So I was really beginning to notice this, this gap in um, academic mm. work and also in um, engagement. So from the very start, the JLI has had a focus on local faith actors and local communities. And it continues to be, I think, really the leading global organization working on this specific topic. And, and, you know, what is your, how have you exactly been involved? And, you know, I mean, you, you're one of those people are very active for doing different types of things. But yeah, share that with the listeners, please. I think I started working with the JLI around 2018. Yeah. And I was invited to co-chair a new learning hub that the JLI was establishing on anti-human trafficking and modern slavery. 
um, sometimes it can be difficult to remember how these connections are, are made and how you get yeah. introduced to people. But um, I think it was probably in relation to another project I'd been working on in the UK, um, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, looking at the role of faith-based organisations in modern, in anti-modern slavery and human trafficking in um, the UK. So I was invited to co-chair its new um, learning hub on anti-human trafficking and modern slavery. And the JLI has traditionally operated by a thematic learning hub. So this is a space, typically a virtual space, because we've been um, located in different places globally. But yeah. it's a learning hub or a space that brings together, as I said before, policymakers, practitioners, faith actors and scholars to work on a specific theme. And I worked on the Anti-Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery Hub with uh, my co-chair, who is a practitioner. She works for the Salvation Army, um, and Gregora, her name is. And we ran web webinars. We commissioned a scoping study called Faith and Freedom, the Role of Local Faith Actors in Anti-Modern Slavery and Human Trafficking. And we also have developed or are developing um, a vlog series but specifically been documenting the impact of the COVID pandemic on the work of faith actors um, working in this area of anti-modern slavery and um, human trafficking. Um, and since then, I've been involved in a number of projects with the JLI. There was a project that was funded by the Belgian government where we worked with Tear Fund, Islamic Relief and local partners in South Sudan on a project called Bridging the Gap, the role of local faith actors in humanitarian response in South Sudan. And what we were very much looking at there was, you know, despite the fact that um, local faith actors are already acting as humanitarians in countries like South Sudan, they've been very much marginalised from donor-funded um, humanitarian action. And this sits alongside all the very prevalent discourses that we hear these days around the importance of localization of aid. So our project very much tried to better understand the impact of providing training for local faith actors in humanitarian skills, but also for international humanitarians on um, faith literacy. So it was supposed to be a two-way, it was a two-way learning model. And we published several um, journal articles on this um, topic. So been involved yeah. in a number of uh, projects, but that's just to name um, a couple in particular. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's amazing. Hey, Emma, you, you know that, um, you know, at, at the moment we are kind of, we are in a, in, and that is with maybe with, with all organizations, you know, going up and down with, and, and, and what I mean with that, you know, financial challenges are there for organizations. We have a lot of ideas, a lot of great people that are involved, um, but we are in that, yeah, again, in a in a in a situation where well, we could use some extra uh, support. So, as a result, um, we have had many discussions about you know what is the elevator speech about uh, JLI. Although some marketing people you know have told me there is no such thing as an elevator speech, I'm still going to ask you the question if you know if you have to explain to people that are involved in uh, you know joining. Um, this community or supporting it, yeah. How would you explain it? In you know, in short. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, and and I have been in a position where I've both explained it to colleagues, mm -hmm. um, 
also in presentations to audiences that aren't familiar with the JLI's work. And in, in my experience, some people have been quite confused about yeah. the aims and objectives of the JLI. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, one of the reasons might be for this, that the Joint Learning Initi Initiative for Faith and Local Communities is a very long title. It's one that captures very well what the JLI does, but I think it can be quite hard to process when you first hear it, there are all these different dimensions um, to it. So for me, I'd probably want to move past the name very quickly. And I'd probably just draw out the two things I've already mentioned, that yeah. this is a global initiative that emphasizes joint learning between academics, practitioners and faith actors around the topic of generating evidence about the role of local faith actors in um, development, humanitarianism and, and peace building. But also that it's been one of the, the, the pioneers, really, I think, in promoting the need to engage with local faith actors. So not, not just in terms of bringing them to the table, but also in terms of learning from them and collaboratively designing um, a policy and practice focused research agenda that very much has their needs and um, their participation at the, at the centre. I would like to piggyback on the on the word evidence that you mentioned, and um, you know, uh, not long ago, um, JLI produced this publication. It's called Face of the Evidence. I know that you have been absolutely involved uh, with the publication as well. Um, yeah, well, why is that an important publication? And and uh, can you explain a bit about? Um, what is meant with evidence? And, and the reason that I'm asking that is, you know, when I was talking with uh, a professor of a more, you know, hard science, he said, you know, where is your empirical evidence? I've gone through this publication. I see all these stories. Um, yeah. So, so um, yeah. So what, what is your take on that? So, so two, two questions, right? One is, is, uh, I know you have been involved in the publication on the state of the evidence. Can you explain a little bit about that and then take us through, you know, what is the definition of evidence within uh, a JLI in our work? Yeah, so before talking about the status of the the state of the evidence report, I just I just want to go back a little bit in the past and talk sure. about why evidence actually matters yeah. with respect to the religions okay. and development um debate. So I mentioned at the beginning of what I was saying that um, it was probably about 15 to 20 years ago when the religions and development field, so I'm talking specifically about the academic field, began to take off. Yeah. Um, before that time, there were no really virtually no publications, very few publications. Um, it was a topic that there was a lot of fear and hesitancy about, say, within economics and development studies. And, you know, governments and, and um, agencies were also very reluctant to engage with um, faith actors. So there were a number of us that started saying it's important to engage with faith actors. Their faith is important in many settings in the global south. It hasn't disappeared in the way that the secularization thesis predicted that it, that it would. Um, and also faith actors play a really important role in defining what development means for communities, but also in providing services advocacy um and, and and so on about about what 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 communities living in poverty um need so faith actors are really important to um to to development but no one was hearing this and they were coming back 
with, well, where's your evidence? You know, how can you prove this? You know, in our experience, engaging with faith actors is dangerous. You know, faith actors want to convert people. That's really what they want to do. They don't really want to help people. Helping people is just a means to gain converts. You know, faith actors cause conflict. You know, they're always at the root of, of wars and conflict. You know, why would we want to engage with them? And then the arguments around, you know, faith actors only want to help members of their own faith tradition. You know, they're not going to be acting like modern humanitarians and, and offering aid and support to everyone. So there was a lot that we had to do to really fight back against those assumptions and, and what I'd also call a bias. So gathering evidence was important being able to demonstrate the importance of faith, um, faith-based organisations, local faith actors to development became absolutely um, essential. And that was really where we sort of sat for that first 10 years of, of the discipline, was really arguing and demonstrating the ways in which faith was relevant, why it was important to engage with faith mm -hmm. actors and what could be um, gained from that. Despite the fact that there's now lots of evidence, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps Perhaps there wasn't so much evidence 15 to 20 years ago. There certainly wasn't the level of academic um, studies on, the, on this topic. And now there's, there's very much written on this topic. Um, despite the fact that this evidence still exists, we're still being asked to produce evidence. Where's your evidence? And also, as you say, you know, some people are looking for quantitative evidence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, evidence that, you know, so, so, so many clinics in a particular country are provided by faith providers, you know, in order to demonstrate their relative importance within the broader health sector. Um, and as you pointed out, much of the evidence is qualitative. It's about listening to people. It's about understanding their lives. It's about understanding what matters to them. It's about listening about their spirituality and the role that that plays in their understandings of what counts as development, the kinds of family structures they want to live in, uh, the livelihoods that they want to pursue, and, and, and so on. So you're right, much of the evidence that we have is, is quite qualitative, is, is quite based around people's stories, people's experiences, things that can't easily be um, quantified. And just very quickly here, I think that there is probably a need for the qualitative and quantitative researchers in mm -hmm. this area to work more closely um, together. And I'd look forward very much to building those kinds of um, alliances in, in, in the future. I'm very much a qualitative um, researcher. So that's the background. Yeah. Um, the state of the evidence um, report uh, I was involved in, I played a role in um, preparing the introductory chapter, although that was substantively written by um, Dr. Olivia um, Wilkinson. And the aim was really for it to be a sort of one-stop shop for people to go to when they say, where's the evidence? Mm. <laughs> you know, this would be the place that we could direct people to. Um, you know, rather than constantly having to start from scratch, reinventing the wheel um, each time. So there was an there's an introductory chapter that um, outlines key areas involved in the study and practice of religion and development. We highlight key shifts and trends, very much to then set the scene for the following chapters, which are then focused on different themes, so yeah. themes like peace and conflict, climate change, gender, and um, and so on. So. Um, I mean, obviously, evidence grows and the field changes. So mm -hmm. this isn't a static endeavour. It will be updated every two to three years, I think. That, that's the plan. But, mm -hmm. but the JLI should become as well known for the state of the evidence report as it is for its um, learning hubs and its focus on local faith actors.
And and if I would ask you, uh, Emma, you know, what are um, where? Because I understand this is a, you know was the first attempt to make a publication. It will be updated. Where do you think the 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 publication has has re is really shining? And where could it you know uh, grow some more in in the next publication? I'm going to go back to my um, yeah. comments about local faith actors and localization. I think you know the real uniqueness and strength of this is mm -hmm. is on the local is on the local faith actors is bringing their voices amplifying their voices make you know bringing them into the into the international mm -hmm. um arena where it can be better understood what matters to them and and how they might be um better engaged with you know on their terms rather mm -hmm. than just on the terms of the um international um agencies we've only published one i mean only one version has been published so far um you know when you always have a new initiative it's a little bit experimental and yeah. um you know it's when you get going in future years that you really begin to be able to develop and expand um your your initial plans you put emphasis on on the on the glow you know where it's what is what where it's shining that is the local actors definitely their their voice bringing that in uh, that experience and where could it where could it uh, where is there still space for more improvement you know for the next publication yeah I think I could say one thing in terms of improvement for the next publication and it's not really so much about the content or the quality of the publication mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're beginning to have discussions now about what the uh, content might look like for the future yeah. um, iterations and in particular um, beginning to have conversations conversations with the local the the global south partners of mm -hmm. the of the jli to see what they would like to focus on and what indeed they would like to offer um as well that's very important one area for improvement i think is dissemination um mm -hmm. you know getting it into the hands of those that really need to, to to see it you know the un agencies the the member states of the un the um the, the big secular NGOs and indeed some of the other faith-based organizations who've not yet really collaborated with the with the JLI. I think that it would go a long way to improving um the faith literacy within the international aid system, um, but also help other faith-based organizations and faith actors articulate um their uniqueness, their strength, their distinctiveness, and their contribution towards the broader um sector. So I think, yeah, probably dissemination. I mean, it has been widely disseminated, but it's so difficult to gauge and to and to know exactly where a document has ended up and what its impact has been. But I think we can always do better on um, dissemination. Maybe to to um, continue talking about the voice of the local actors. I think uh, I don't know exactly when it started, but JLI also has has now the fair and equitable initiative. I think it's it it started after the publication was done or at the same time maybe. Um, that is definitely um, becoming an initiative that's very important also for the work of JLI and and you know its community. Um, how do you see the fair and equitable initiative, um, you know, collaborating or working or being part of the the next phase of the evidence report? Um, 
So as you've just said, over the last um, couple of years, through the Fair and Equitable Initiative, the JLI has really tried to deepen its approach to localization and engaging with local safe actors. So a lot of new contacts have been built, a lot of understanding and trust has been built with um, local actors who I think we're very much envisaging will be involved in the process of deciding what the new um, state of the evidence um, report looks like and indeed also mm -hmm. contributing towards um, writing um, some of the um, submissions as well for the for the report. Mm -hmm. um, I think the Fair and Equitable Initiative is absolutely at the core of the future of, of the JLI. It's only been going now, for, I think, for a couple of years, yeah. um, but was very much the JLI's attempt to implement or to, or to consciously and inten intentionally implement an anti-racist and decolonial approach to um, it, its work. Um, and in addition to the contributions that could be made to the State of the Evidence report, there's also been a really strong effort to localise the JLI's learning hub. So as I mentioned before, we've had these learning hubs. I co-chair uh, the learning hub on anti-human trafficking and modern slavery. But they very much tended, for logistical reasons, if anything else, to be led by people in the global north, um, mm. to not always include global south practitioners and scholars, um, you know, due to language barriers. There were all kinds of logistical reasons why this kind of very broad engagement can, can sometimes be um, very difficult. So to address this, the JLI has been very intentionally um, regionalizing or localizing the um, learning hubs through carrying out what it's called listening dialogues, which mm. are meetings that could be half a day, a day or two days long, where local faith actors are invited to attend and to brainstorm on topics that are of interest to them and of relevance to their communities that they might like to then collaborate together and um, develop um, a learning hub. So I think this works really in its infancy and I very much see that it has a lot of potential um, in in the future. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and, and I, I, I agree with you. I think that has a lot of potential to further uh, de develop and evolve. Um, you you mentioned in you know um, the discussions that it definitely came also about the topic around localization and decolonization, and I, I have a question for you about that. You know where do you see the debates about localization and and decolonization in the religion, religions and development go in the next five to ten years? Yeah, I so just just to, just to begin, I think that decolon the, the concept of decolonization is still mm -hmm. something very much of a of um a scholarly term, yeah. um, whereas localization is probably the term that's used much more within the um, practitioner mm. um, environment. But I think in many ways they they over, overlap. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of, in terms of both terms, localization and decolonization, I think they're particularly um, pertinent to the religions and development field because I think there was a strong feeling, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, that bringing faith into development, that arguing for the relevance of faith to development was a decolonial and a localizing um, initiative. You know, it was part of decolonization and part of localization because previously faith actors had been ignored, had been marginalized, had been left out of development. You know, perhaps this being part of a kind of colonial a Western bias that, that's still perpetuating um, 
sort of enlightenment and, and scientific and rational uh, values than pitting them against uh, spirituality and um, religion. So I think there was that feeling at the time, but I think as time's gone on, we've perhaps begun to realise that there's been a degree of instrumentalisation of faith within the aid sector, and that this probably hasn't been quite as localised and as decolonised as many of us would have uh, liked or would have assumed was going to happen. And I think this is really where this, this need to re-emphasise or to emphasise the local faith actors has come in, because, you know, to, it, it, in many ways, faith-based organisations have been instrumentalised to, um, to, to, to suit the needs of the uh, Western aid industry. Um, and the local faith actors have been left out of that. So I think this kind of move towards local faith actors, towards the fair and equitable um, initiative, a very much an attempt to really um, intentionally localise and decolonise uh, religions and um, development. Very recently with the JLI, I have begun a study where we have conducted a survey of, we've had about 105 responses, so a survey of faith actors, both international, local faith actors, to ask them, what are your experiences of these terms? Are these mm. terms localization and decolonization terms that are used in your workplace? Are they used in your reporting? Um, are they something that you discuss in your in your meetings? So we're trying to get a really broad understanding of how these terms actually play out in practice, or are they just discourses that really don't have much relevance at um, the, the local level or the level of practice? So we've just completed that um, survey, and we're going to be beginning some interviews. And then there will be um, a report written. So I'm hoping from that we might be able to predict a little bit <laughs> what uh, localization and decolonization might mean for religions and development going forward in the next five to ten years. You know, and perhaps even our, our publication, our report might even be able to have some kind of impact on how that discussion um, develops. Um, but as I said, we're, we're, we're just at the beginning of that study. Um, so when when do you expect that you know that paper or publication to be available? Uh, yeah, probably, probably the second quarter of next year, so twenty twenty four, spring twenty twenty four, I think, because we're just about to start our interviews now. Um, so I think yeah, twenty twenty early twenty twenty four, we 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 should be um mm. publishing our report. On, on that research. Okay. It sounds like an interesting chapter for the state of the evidence report as well. So it could well be, yeah. It yeah, could well yeah. be. Nice. Um you know, Emma, for me, you know, working for a development organization, really the sustainable development goals are really kind of an important. It's not perfect, but at least as a world, you know, we identified 17 goals to make this world more sustainable. Um and my, my question to you about it is you know, from from my point of view, it seems that the JLI's mission um, is is more crucial than ever in in contributing to reaching these goals. Um, and you talked already, in, you know, from the, the the minute we started about the joint learning. What is the power of joint learning within this, and um, how do you see uh, the potential of collaborative uh, approaches in creating sustainable change? I mean, it's really interesting when you look at the um, SDGs, the goals and the targets and the indicators, there's virtually no mention of religion 
I think it's mentioned on a couple of um, occasions, even when we're talking about things like gender equality or social inequality or even conflict, um, the areas that many still like to attribute towards um, religion and certainly religion can play a role in those um, those areas. Really no mention of religion um, at all. Um, you know, there could be very good reasons for this, I think, um, you know, again, going back to what I was saying earlier about religion being perceived as being something that's divisive, something that um, is a cause of conflict. And, you know, I think that, that there is an argument that the sustainable development goals need to be universal. They need to kind of cut across different cultures and different um, religions. But nonetheless, I think there's still a way of, of bringing recognition of religion and its importance to people in the global south into a framework like the SDGs without it um, being problematic. Because on the ground, it's the local faith actors, um, often in their churches and their mosques, who are running workshops on women's empowerment, who are providing school uniforms so children can afford to go to school, who are raising money for free school meals or to build um, toilet blocks at school, you know, so, so girls can go to school when they're menstruating and don't have to stay at home. So it's often these things are really being organised at the very local level. Um, and they could be scaled up, they could be better supported, and they're just not, not being. So I think there's a lot of work going on at the local level, um, not just in the global south and the global north as well, that's undervalued, under-recognised, under-resourced, and could be much better supported uh, with the aim of achieving the SDGs. I mean, something else that I think is very interesting at the moment is that, as you say in your question, the, the Sustainable Development Goals are at their midpoint. So really soon, the discussions are going to be starting about what's the next framework going to look like. We've had the Millennium Development Goals for 2015. Yeah. We've got the Sustainable Development Goals for the next 15 years, 2030. What's the new framework going to look like? And on the experience of, of the last of the of the um, post 2015 discussions, they started three, four, five years before the goals were actually um, set. So I think this is a really good time for organisations like the JLI to be talking to faith actors about how they could be involved in the next phase, what they might want that to look like, um, sharing their experiences of how they have implemented the goals on, on the ground and um, the various successes and challenges that they've, they've had with that. So I think this is a really good time to be bringing faith actors into the emerging discussion about what the 2030 um, agenda is going to look like. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, you know, in my regular podcast, I often talk about what I came across um, is that, you know, there is this growing group of people uh, who have been saying that, um, you know, if you it's great that we have the 17 sustainable development goals so you know it's it's calling for uh process and system changes but you can't make that work if you don't pay proper attention to the ability skills and knowledge that you need as individuals and as communities so they came up with the inner development goals you know five goals being uh, being thinking relating collaborating and acting and um i yeah there seems to be you know an area where JLI can play an important role, yeah. right, in in, uh, 
that particular uh, realm and bringing these worlds together. What, yeah, what, yeah what is I, your... really, I mean, that's the joint yeah. learning. That's yeah. the bridging the gap, isn't it? That's the bringing together. You know, JLI plays a really important sort of mediating role, I think, because mm -hmm. it has strong connections and trust with local faith actors, but also very good connections with... Um, with the international agencies as, mm. as well, like the World Bank and the United Nations agencies. So it plays a really important um, mediating role, um, you know, in, in that space between the local and the global. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Hey, Emma, these conversations always go fast. I have, I have a number of what I call you know, lighter uh, questions, but I I, I think they, they, uh, they're kind of fun way of, of addressing you know the, the topic that we are trying to address today as well um music is very important to me so i always ask questions about music in my podcast so if i ask you emma to come up with a song or a piece of music that represents jli you know what type of music or, or song would you come up with um and and why so I'm just thinking earlier on when I, my children came home from school, yeah. they always usually blast out some, um, some music and they were playing one of my favourite songs, one of their favourite songs as well. Oh. So that Don't Stop Me Now by, by Queen. I, I won't attempt to sing it, but uh, I think everyone knows that an amazing yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. song. Um, but I also, that, that Don't Stop Me Now, um, I think really sort of captures something about the life cycle of very small NGOs like mm -hmm. the, or non-profits like the JLI, yeah. um, where there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm and passion um to really push ahead with important work, but at the same time, it can be really challenging to keep viable in the face of the ongoing pressure to, to bring in funding, um, you know, for the for the core work of the organisation um, and, and project funding as well. It's a very, very competitive um, environment out there. So I think I can I can hear the JLI shouting, don't stop me now. Um, yeah. You know, it's an organisation that's had a, tremendous um impact so far and there's so much more that needs to be done but it's facing an ever more uh, challenging you know economic but also political environment where you know often often our government don't want us to have the kind of civil society space that the JLI promotes and really stands for um so I think you know this does prevent present a real threat to um non-profits like the JLI that are advocating and working towards a more just and fair um, world. Great. I, I, I like that song. I like the band as well. So I thought you were. We've noted that. <laughs> um, yeah, your opinion about the focus for the future of JLI? Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it just I, I really think that the Fair and Equitable Initiative, mm -hmm. which is just getting off the ground, um, it's very much in its infancy, but it's really something that is that is unique and could really be a game changer in how we actually um, really do localization properly. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of discourse about localization, about the localization of aid in particular. I'm 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 talking about and engaging with with local actors and defining priorities and so on. But often that's just just talk, just. Um, you know, just box ticking. 
um, or people really have good intentions, but when it comes down to it, it's just much too difficult to do within the existing aid architecture that we that we have today. But I really think the JLI is doing something quite unique here. Um, you know, it's slow work. It takes time to build trust. Um, you know, it takes time for things to emerge. This work doesn't move at a very fast pace. It's very time consuming. Um, but the JLI is making really great strides, I think, with things like the listening dialogues, um, very sort of small scale work within local communities in one setting, you know, in one town or village somewhere. Um, this kind of work is really important. And we're learning methodologically as well about how to do this better. You know, it's not just about about it being the ethical thing to do, mm -hmm. but we also need to learn how to do it. Yeah. You know, we need to put ourselves out there and try to do things differently, try to think about how we carry out research differently, how we write publications differently, um, you know, in ways that are decolonial and, and, and localised. And I really think the JLI is, is at the forefront of that with respect to the uh, religions and development field. If um, if you have to name one colleague, a partner or a supporter of JLI who best embodies, according to you, what JLI is about, who will you name and why? And this is also, you know, a kind of a, a great one for me who, you know, who I should approach maybe to to be a guest on, on, the, on the next on one of the next episodes. Well, apart from you, Maurice, <laughs> can I not? Can I fishing for that, right? <laughs> it's a really difficult question. I mean, I've worked yeah. with um, the staff in the past and the current staff. I know them really well. You know, not least because they're just such friendly, open people that have been really easy to get to know and and to spend time with. I mean, everyone's amazing, both as people and also as colleagues. But I think going back to what I was saying about the Fair and Equitable Initiative, I mm -hmm. think I'd really like to to, to have a shout out to Sadia Kidway, mm -hmm. who has been leading that um, initiative. And I find her to be especially inspirational and really to truly embody the localization focus of the JLI. I mean, Sadia is a very calm, almost understated personality, mm -hmm. getting on with this work quietly in the background with great um, effect and impact she's been leading on the fair and equitable initiative and on the localization of the learning clubs and as i said before this is not fast moving work mm -hmm. it doesn't fit the timelines of funders and donors it has to be approached at a really steady pace so trust is built and so understanding grows and Saudi has approached this magnificently i mean she has the patience and attitude to really make a success of the Fair and Equitable Initiative in a way that I think would really be transformatory for how we um, engage with local faith actors. So, Sadia, okay. shout out to Sadia. We'll, we'll definitely <laughs> reach out to Sadia to, to be a future guest on, on this podcast. Um, Emma, what does it mean to be part of the JLI community? And, and do you consider yourself to be part of that community? Um, and how do you see yourself within that community? Because it's definitely a very diverse community. So, you know, I, I'm asking this question because for folks out there, you know, they're, yeah, they're getting to know JLI now as a result of what you're explaining. They're checking out the website. They think, oh, this, this, yeah, this seems to be interesting. But 
yeah tell us more about the community from your perspective yeah it's a, it's a really good question so so um I suppose a sort of starting point for me before I knew the personalities and mm -hmm. you know I mean I'm on the I'm on the board now and the leadership council of the JLI so I actually have quite an investment I you know I can play a role in sort of shaping what the um, organization does but mm -hmm. before I was doing all of that I think for me the real attraction was this connection with um, with the practitioners policymakers and the local faith actors as a as a researcher who wants to have an impact and wants to make a difference um the networks that the jli has, has has opened to me and has introduced me to um you know and again it's the networks beyond the jli that are wonderful as well as i said the broader board the executive executive board the the leadership council um the individuals involved in um those sort of bodies within the jli are also um extremely inspirational and and, and committed so it's not just the jli it's it's the broader community um beyond the jli as well so yes i do feel very much part of the of the jli community um and i and as i say i've had i've had the benefit of being involved on on the kind of organizational um level as, as the years have gone on but even at the beginning when i was just um you know starting and getting to know everyone it's a very friendly um um initiative i mean the other thing worth mentioning about the yeah. jli is that um, there have been very few men actually involved oh. in the kind of key organizational um structure mm -hmm. over the years the two um ceos have both been women and the majority of the staff had been women as well so it's a very female-led um initiative which um I don't mind initiatives that have men in as well, but it's been particularly yeah. nice from a female point of view mm -hmm. to um, be working with so many amazing women. Yeah, no, it, and it definitely uh, is. I, I can, you know, uh, affirm that. It's, 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 yeah, it's great to uh, I've been now a couple of months you know, closely involved. So it's uh, more closely They're great, involved. aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, Emma, what do you hope you know this this podcast might do for JLI? Yes. So I think what do I think? I think this probably goes back to my uh, point earlier about dissemination. Mm -hmm. that I think the work of the JLI is really well known actually in the religion and development world. Um, yeah. A lot of us use the JLI material in our teaching. So my undergrad and master students who do my religion and global development course all know about the JLI. So I think kind of in that smallish world of religion and development, um, the JLI is really well, really well known. So, you know, I think that community is going to enjoy hearing these podcasts. But also, I, I hope the podcast will raise the profile of the JLI outside this very narrow religion and development world and bring its important work to the attention of a wider range of practitioners, policymakers, scholars, and um, faith actors. So I think it's that real, that kind of wide impact. And I think I think the really good thing as well is that because you're going to be interviewing so many different types of people um, from different locations, that people listening to the podcast are going to get a really good sense of the sort of diversity um, of, of, of the JLI, um, you know, that it isn't just another um, Global North network that um, that you know doesn't engage very well with 
with um, colleagues in the global south. So, yeah, hmm. that's what okay, I Okay, let's keep our fingers crossed. Okay, hey, th thank you so much for- uh, Thank you for asking me. Call. I was really, really delighted. And and thank you for everything you do. Get, get no some problem. rest. No and... problem. Pleasure. Yeah. All right. Bye. Okay, bye. 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 As we wrap up today's insightful conversation, I hope it has sparked your curiosity and interest in the vital work of the Joint Learning Initiative on Faith and Local Communities, JLI. If today's episode has resonated with you, whether it's the desire to collaborate, contribute or even offer financial support to further JLI's impactful mission, we'd love to hear more from you. The JLI's journey is one of collaboration, learning and making a tangible difference in communities through the unique intersection of faith and development. Your involvement could be a significant part of this transformative process. Whether you're looking to offer your expertise, resources, or are seeking to understand more about how you can contribute, your initiative is invaluable. Please feel free to reach out to us. Send an email to maurice at jliflc.com or contact us through our platform. We welcome your thoughts, questions, and proposals for collaboration. I'll personally ensure that your interest is directed to the right people at JLI, helping you connect with a network of individuals and organizations dedicated to creating a better world through faith-informed development. Thank you for joining us on Walk, Talk, Listen, where each conversation brings us closer to understanding and action. Your engagement doesn't just end with listening, it begins here. Let's continue to be part of this remarkable journey together. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram.